Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be talking about something that I know that you have asked yourself. Do you ever look around and wonder why some people fail while others overcome great odds to achieve success and you ask yourself why you haven't achieved more, even if you have been successful. I mean, you know, most people, it's never enough, right? Well, today's guest um, is going to give you the answer to that question. (laughs) You're never going to have to ask yourself that again. His name is Terry Giles, and he is the author of a new book called The 15% Overcoming Hardships and Achieving Lasting Success. What is the 15% you may ask yourself? Well, those are high achievers. And um, Terry didn't just, isn't just writing about this, you know, as an interesting uh, topic. He actually lived this, and that's how he was able to figure it out. So, Terry, welcome to the show. I'm sort of leaving. Well, thank you, I'm, Dr. Lieberman. It's a pleasure being there. Um, I mean, I, I guess I'll give sort of a, a, a basic description of you, introduction of you more than that, but I, I'm assuming and I would like to hear really all the details of all of the successes that, well, all of the obstacles that you overcame and then the successes from one to the next. Um, Terry was born in St. Louis, Missouri. He achieved, uh, you know, various uh, degrees, including a uh, law degree, a J.D., from Pepperdine in uh, Los Angeles, where and where there is now a Terry M. Giles Honor Scholar um, Award, and he established a, one of the most successful criminal law firms on the West Coast, and only to become disillusioned by it, and then to become an entrepreneur, I think a serial entrepreneur, and to have achieved amazing success. Okay, I'll let you take it from there, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I I had a childhood that a lot of people would consider to be tough, I guess. At the time, it didn't seem so much so to me because it was my childhood and I didn't know anything else. But uh, we were very poor. Uh, We lived in a very small town at the foot of the Ozarks on the Missouri side of the Ozark Mountains. And I went to 21 different schools um, through through 10th grade. And in three different states, wow. uh, my father was wow. gone most of the time because he was an alcoholic and also went to jail at one time. And so it was a tough upbringing. I had a mother who was unbelievably positive and always um, convinced me that I could be anything I wanted to be. Uh, at huh. night, she would pretend to read my palms. She didn't know how to read palms, but she'd tell me my success uh. long was line was very long and so she was always pumping me up but quite honestly Uh moving from school to school it was hard for me to fully accept that but the 15 percent really hit me when I was representing 150 of the 800 victims of the predator priest cases in California from 2000 to 2008 
And we had to do a psychological workup on each of our clients. And in the process, the psychiatrist kept telling me about the fact that when real hardship happens, and certainly molestation by a priest would qualify, 85% of the time, it really ruins a person's life. They never really recover from it. But for some reason, 15% overcome it. Not only do they overcome it, but somehow it makes them stronger and better than they might have been if the event had not occurred at all. Now, when we looked at our 150 clients, we had 20 that fit that category, which was almost 15%. And that's Uh what really got me thinking then, what are the elements that would cause somebody to be in the 15%? And more importantly, is it built into their DNA? Is it luck? Or is it skill sets that could be learned? And if that's the case then we could change things. It doesn't have to be the 15%. It could be the 25% or the 50% or the 75%. And so as I go through the book and I use a a lot of information that's been been done uh, medically and psychiatrically, I use my life not so much as an autobiography as much as a lab rat on the things that I know did work for me and the things that didn't work for me as well. So that's really what the book is about, and and it's reaching a conclusion about how anyone could use those elements that I think is the key. Uh Uh-huh. Well, let me, um, before we get into that more, I just want to tell you that, well, first of all, uh, my day job is as a forensic psychiatrist. You didn't hire me in 2000. (laughs) <laughs> to do your cases, but I actually did do two of the leading cases um, for the priest abuse uh, cases in L.A. around that oh, time. Fantastic. Um, and I saw, um, you know, it was very, I, I know you write about this in your book, too, how... Um, to see grown men, I mean, these were men uh, mostly in, in their 20s and 30s and 40s, and as they were telling their story, uh, they would, I mean, you wrote about how they had bursts of anger or simply cold defiance because they saw you as an authority figure, you know, lawyers as authority figures, just like uh, the priests, and yes, I can see that. But with me as a psychiatrist, what I got mostly, I mean, yeah, I got some bursts of all kinds of emotions, but especially tears. And I remember how when I was sitting there, because I, I saw them for, um, you know, not just an evaluation. These two key cases uh, I actually treated and as well as being the expert. And um, what they used to burst out into, into tears um, as they, from week to week telling their story, and I always, as I was sitting there, I would always think to myself, wow, I wish there was a camera in here so that people could see just what an impact child abuse makes, you know, um, that here are these grown men, um, they hadn't, you know, they were not in the 15%, they weren't having such great lives, you know, they weren't having success, Um, but if people could see the pain that 
that children, you know, even grow, when they become adults, that they never forget the pain, and it's just under the surface. That's exactly right. Yeah, what happens is they rebel against authority. So as a result, they start doing bad in school. They can't hold a job. They're in trouble with the law. It makes life very, very tough. So let's talk about your life, and let's go more into... Um, first of all, I, I'm curious as to why you had to go, why you moved to 21 schools in such a short time. Well, my mom didn't have a career. She was really, she got pregnant with me when she was 17. Uh, she had me when she was 18. My dad had come back from World War II, and he was in a lot of the island landings. And between landings, quite honestly, on the boats, they would get drunk because they didn't know if they would live to the next landing. Mm. And in the mm. process, um, he had the alcohol gene. So when she married him, she didn't fully understand that. But he would disappear for months at a time, and we would be stranded. We only had one car, and he had it. My mom would have to figure out how to go to work. And so we would bounce between my grandmothers, uh, my grandparents in Missouri, my grandparents in Phoenix. Uh, wherever mom could get a job, that's where we had to go. And eventually, hmm. in, when I got to high school, we ended up in California. But that's why we moved uh-huh. so much. Quite honestly, we got booted out of apartments, you know, because we couldn't pay the rent. And uh-huh. it was a pretty, pretty tough time. How my mom stayed okay, positive through all that is a miracle to me. I love her um, reading your poem. That was really brilliant. Um, okay, so now how you became part of this 15%, how you got beyond that? Well, you know, I think I was, I was part of the luck for me was my mom always telling me that I could be something special and that life could be any way I wanted it to be. And she encouraged me to read books that would, um, that would emphasize that. I remember the first book... I'm not sure I really read it as much as she read it to me, was uh, Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking. So number one, I was Mm -hmm. very lucky there. And then secondly, an event happened to me that I never really related it uh, until later, especially when I saw some uh, work that was done by some psychiatrist in London relative to the bombing in uh, England during World War II. Mm-hmm. I was in uh, third grade in Missouri, and uh, things were a little bit different then. A, a tornado, a big tornado warning came up, and we got those quite often, but this one was really supposed to hit hit close. So they told all the kids, you've got to go home. And so parents were called, and parents would pick up the kids, or they'd get on their bikes and ride home. But my mom was stranded, and we lived about three or four miles away from the school, and finally, I was the only one left at school. I was eight years old, and my uh, oh, wow. uh, there were two teachers there. And But finally, the teacher said, look, we have to go take care of our family, so Terry, you're going to have to walk home. And, uh, you know, you got to keep hmm. in mind, this was an era when they told us we'd survive a nuclear attack by hiding under our desk, okay? So right. you know, things weren't quite as, as uh, user-friendly for kids in those days. So as I was walking home, there was paved road and then dirt road and then literally sort of fields and a forest I had to go through. And it, 
And the tornado was obviously very close because it sucked all the air out of the environment. Uh, there were no bird sounds. It got very dark, uh, almost like a solar eclipse in the middle of the day. So it was totally dark, totally quiet. It was very clear to me that this thing was very close. And I started looking for a place to hide, you know, in the hollow of a tree or in a ditch or someplace. Because as kids, we were raised to be very fearful of tornadoes. And then it occurred to me that the only person who was going to get me home was me. And so I just had to put one foot in front of the other and keep going and overcome my fear. And uh, I did make it home. It turned out the tornado was close, but didn't hit where we were. My mom had my baby sister in her arms at the front door ready to go out and dive in the ditch in front of our home if it had hit. But what happened was that was what's called a near miss for me. It didn't happen. I got through it. And interestingly enough, I carried with me this view. So whether I was in the military or I was starting a new business or my first time in a jury trial, I had this saying that I always said to myself, which was, I need to lean forward and hope my feet keep up with me before my face hits the ground. And I hadn't really related it to that incident until I began to look at all this stuff and see some of the things that happened early in my life that really created certain events. So I really believe what that did was it gave me confidence to move forward, to not be stopped. And uh, Uh that became very usable in my life from the standpoint of going from business to business. I've had over 35 different companies. You know, I had success as a criminal trial lawyer and also as a civil trial lawyer. Um, I've never been afraid to take on new things. I think the fact we moved so much ended up being a real value to me. I could have maybe got Mm -hmm. stuck, stuck feeling sorry for myself, but... You know, as a result, a new business or a new event or uh, even moving, if I had to move because of something I was doing, it never impacted me very much because I had so much of that as a kid. It just seemed sort of natural. So, you know, we have two five-star hotels in Europe, a company in Seattle, one in San Francisco. I'm doing stuff in Baltimore. So I do things all over the place. But the truth is, none of that bothers me because of really what happened when I was a kid. So yes, there were certain each time things you that change, I think were just pure you, luck. You know? uh-huh. But each time you changed schools, it was like um, you had to sort of orient yourself again, make friends again, figure out how you're going to succeed in this new environment. So it was like a, a trial period for uh, practices for um, for the future, for when you grew up. You know, that's exactly right. And in those days, they didn't really, uh, nobody was was uh, talking about bullying. But, you know, bullying happened all the time. So every time as a, as a boy you would get to the new school, there was always the bully that, you know, you had to fight or deal with in some way. Yeah. And, um, well, that was a major negative in the first three or four years. Ultimately, honestly, I, I feel that my ability to negotiate today really came from the mm-hmm. fact that I realized that if I could talk my way out of some of these fights, it hurt a lot less. Because uh-huh. uh, you know, all the bullies aren't like uh, spuds in, um, 
in in the Christmas yeah. story. Some of them really are tough. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, there were just lots of lessons to be learned. And what happens is, you see, I, I really do believe this. When a person goes through a hardship, everybody has a tendency to say, why me? But if you get right. stuck in why me, if you just see yourself as a victim, you talk about yourself as a victim, you act like a victim, and you kind of get stuck in victimhood, and it's really hard then to move out of that. But if you say, why me? But then what you do is you embrace the pain. Hey, you know, this didn't feel good. You, you say to yourself, I'm gonna, I've learned some lessons here. I don't like how this feels. I'm not going to let this happen to me again. And you move through it. As you move through mm-hmm. it, it becomes like a mini miracle in your life. And every time you do that, you become more positive in what you can make out of yourself. You realize that life really can be whatever you want it to be because you're watching that happen one step at a time. But if you never move out of it, you never get the benefit of understanding that you're a creative being and you do not have to be at the effect of life. You can be in charge of life. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so what do you think, what are some of the characteristics of the people who have some of these same obstacles or different obstacles, you know, there are all kinds of obstacles, and um, and they don't end up being as successful as you? I mean, yes, of course, one of them is uh, stuck, being stuck in victimhood. Um, I mean... <laughs> You know, it, it's amazing how many, I mean, people, people, the typical story of someone who came from your background would be someone who uh, became, would, be, would become an alcoholic yourself and who would uh, become a drifter, um, you know, think that your mother, <laughs> your mother misread your palm, <laughs> that was hogwash. I mean, it would, be, it would have been so much easier for someone to ter- make that, take that path. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's really interesting. Words have unbelievable power. Even the words we say to ourselves. I, I talk in the in the book about the fact that I had the benefit of working at Disneyland. I was a jungle cruise operator at Disneyland as I worked my way to college. And huh. Disney has an entire vocabulary around when you're an employee there. You know, you don't have a uniform, it's your costume. Uh, you don't go to work, you go on stage. Uh, they didn't have mm. clients or customers, they were guests. But those words had real power. And uh, later in my other businesses, my law office, uh, automobile dealership, anything where we dealt with people, I had all of our employees, I talked to them about our clients or customers actually being guests. And they are to be treated as as you would treat a guest in your home. So whether they're you know waiting in the in the waiting room in order to see me as a lawyer, or whether they're out shopping for a car, they are treated as a guest. It's amazing how that single word can make a huge difference in how people see things. Well, again, when you're when you're dealing with with words that talk about yourself. The words that you use in your head about yourself have power. And you start to develop based upon 
or I believe you begin to develop based on the words you use to describe yourself, even in your head. And so that's why words are so, so important. In fact, you know, athletes all the time will talk about visualization. And I believe you can use visualization in your life to be a better father, a better husband, uh, you know, a better sibling, um, a better son. Um, You can visualize how you want to be, sort of the best version of you in a particular situation. But then if you back it up with your conversation, everything you say, and your conduct, everything you do, once your consciousness is aligned with your conversation and your conduct, I actually believe that we then begin to create events in our life. And then mm-hmm. what you have to do is be careful what you ask for and, and also know yeah. that positive thinking works, negative thinking works too. So right. you got to be careful. Well, it's a powerful well tool. I would like to go to the part, like before you... The the change, well, okay, did you always, in your childhood, while you were going through all these things, did you always practice things that, like, you know, what you were just talking about? I mean, I, I don't know that you knew about visualization and words and, I mean, and when you were a child or in high school, how, like, how did you get from that childhood to even thinking you would be a lawyer, that you could achieve that? Well, you know what, I'll tell you that story and then I'll, I'll give you the answer to that question. This, how that happened was I had to give an oral report. I can't even remember now what it was, but it was in fourth or fifth grade. And I was new in the school and I really wasn't doing very well. But I gave up, got up and gave the oral report and the teacher went crazy over how I, how I did it. And I, I wasn't even aware of anything I was doing special but apparently I really acted it out. Whatever it is I was doing, she really liked it. Then again, in eighth grade, I had to give an oral book report. And when I gave that oral book report, again, my grades weren't that great, but the teacher gave me A-plus you know, on delivery, A-plus on the wording, and absolutely insisted that I go into speech and debate, and I signed up for speech and debate in ninth grade. And... And I, I guess because I, I knew I could talk well in front of a group, even going back at fifth grade, um, I thought that, the, that what that meant or how I could use that was to be a lawyer because you'd see Perry Mason on TV or Owen Marshall on TV, and there they are doing trials. And so I began to, to watch those television shows, and I, and I quite honestly believed that I was going to grow up and be a lawyer. I mean, that's what I was going to do. I was going to be a trial lawyer. And then speech and debate well, but, went very well wait, for wait, me. Wait, 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 yeah. wait. One, one yeah. second. Sorry for interrupting, but I just... Um, but didn't you... Um, weren't you, like, fourth, fifth, eighth grade, while this was happening, even ninth grade, didn't you sometimes say to yourself, who, who do I think I am? that I could become a lawyer. What? You know, I come from this kind of a background. How could I ever become a lawyer? I'll tell you, um, one of the advantages of moving around a lot was, especially in a non-computer era, 
is if I screwed up, if I was not doing well in school, if I really was in trouble, uh, we'd move and I'd get a fresh start. And I have to tell you, those fresh starts meant a lot to me. And I wonder today if I had just been in one place and sort of my reputation would have followed, uh, you know, one year after another, what would the result have been? But by being able to always have a fresh start, I could always start anew. And so I could, I could and then I would have this desire to try to make it perfect. Of course, you can't do that, and I'd mess up again, but then I'd get another fresh start. So doing that over and over again, I kept having an opportunity to get it right, sort of a, a, a form of Groundhog Day over my first 10 years in yeah. school by changing school so much. But, you know, if you look back on it, if I tell that story, everybody sees, you know, to say, wow, 21 moves in 10 years, that's terrible. But actually... It was a huge benefit to me. It it was a huge plus. And and I actually after a while I could see that it was an advantage, it was not a disadvantage. And so I didn't well, I begin to see I'm... myself Yeah, go ahead. Uh huh. Well well I guess what I'm thinking, not just the twenty one schools and all that, but I guess I'm thinking more like socially, like um you know, knowing that you kept being evicted, knowing that your father was an alcoholic and he would disappear for months, um, knowing that your mother didn't really have a career, that she was just doing the best that she could, but, but that that wasn't, that you, you were very poor. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it, was, it was a leap to think that um, someone, in terms of a social sense, that someone who could come from... Um, such poverty or such lack of success, in a sense, um, could become successful. How did you overcome that? Well, part of it was I didn't let anybody know about it. I was pretty much a loner, had been probably most of my life, but it really started as a kid. You know, I didn't want to bring kids over to my house uh, to play. I didn't want uh, them to be aware of how poor I was. Uh, I always tried to get a job, so I had a little bit of money, so I, my clothes would look, you know, okay. I had a, you know, a paper route from the time I was, I don't know, 11, I guess, and uh, always was looking for a job. You know, it might be a dishwasher or whatever it is I needed to do because I needed the money. And um, so, to be honest with you, it was, um, I, I, I was embarrassed by by how poor I was, but I wasn't going to let anybody else see that if I could help it. So while uh-huh. that was true, I doubt that very many of my friends or teachers as I was growing up had any idea of uh, of my home life at that time. Uh-huh. Hmm. And so, so it didn't, then, it didn't uh, impact me as much as you might think it would because I just... I didn't let it. And so how did you end up in law school? I, maybe I interrupted you when you were talking, you were starting <laughs> to talk about speech in ninth grade. Well, in high school, by the time I got out of high school, I was considered one of the top 100 speakers and debaters in the United States in high school. So I ended up going to college on a debate scholarship. And then my job huh. was the Jungle Cruise, where basically I'm talking the entire time. 
So by that time, I was um, feeling very confident. Uh, my high school senior year, the class could pick who they wanted to be the speaker at our high school graduation, and the class picked me to be the speaker, mm. even though I was not the valedictorian or anything. So I had had, by that time, I had really had enough success to where I felt very confident in who I was and what I was going to be. The only the only thing I ran, problem I ran into is when I was a senior in college, that was uh, the first year for the lottery for the draft because Vietnam was going on. It's still, unfortunately, the only lottery I've ever won. Bad one to win. So I ended up <laughs> yeah. coming out of school and I had to get the military out of the way. And uh, I ended up doing six years in the Army Reserve and seven months active duty. So it delayed law school for a year. And um, that was the only delay. But I was very clear by the time I was probably a junior or senior in high school that I was going to be a trial lawyer. There was just no doubt about it. And in my view, because of television, I thought, you know, being a trial lawyer meant being a criminal defense lawyer because you get in trial right away. You have a lot of trials. Um, it just seemed the way to go. So when I got out of college, I opened my own doors and started my own practice. Uh-huh. And then and, uh, you what know, I, got you? I, I got lucky. I had a, a, a murder case my first year, and it got a lot of publicity, and we did a good job, and things exploded. And five and a half years into practice, we had 35 lawyers, over 100 employees in the firm. Keep in mind, we didn't have computers, so you had lots of secretaries and investigators, et cetera. And um, in my first eight and a half years, I tried... 90 cases to verdict, including 13 murder cases, three death penalty cases. And um, wow. quite honestly, at that moment, my life, I was experiencing everything I hoped I would be. And then, um, you know, in my opinion, tragedy hit, and I had to, I had to make a hard right turn. And what was that? I represented a gentleman by the name of Fred Douglas, and Fred uh, was accused of killing nine women. The DA made some mistakes, and I got, or the police, and I got some evidence suppressed, and then the DA made a couple mistakes in the trial, and I got Fred off. And then six months later, he killed two more girls. And oh, wow. I couldn't figure out why the world was a better place because I did what I did for a living, and I didn't mm. see any other choice but to quit. So my whole life had been planned to be a criminal defense lawyer. I was at the top of my field. We were doing 600 criminal court appearances a month. We had the largest criminal defense practice in California. I mean, you know, I was in the paper all the time. It was, you know, living in the big house on top of the hill. Everything was great. And now, all of a sudden, boom, I got what I asked for, but it wasn't what I expected. And now what uh -huh. do I do? And uh, I quit, and uh, I also realized at that time I, I couldn't even sell my interest in the firm because I was the one who brought in most of the business. So basically, the, the firm without me, the firm wouldn't make it. In fact, within six months, it fell apart. And so, uh, but, I, but then what I thought was I started this business called a practice of law, so why couldn't I do that? 
in some other field, only this time build a business where if a truck ran over me in a crosswalk, the business wouldn't lose a dime's worth of value. And that's when I began uh-huh. my business career. And what was your first business? It was a small automobile uh, dealership, Toyota dealership uh, in Garden Grove, California. It was uh, selling 30 cars a month. Out of 1,200 Toyota dealerships in the U.S. in 1983, it was number 1,150. You have to remember that Toyota was not the big uh, car that it is today back then. In fact, the what was called the Datsun 240Z was the big Japanese car. That later, Datsun changed its name to Nissan. But I bought this Toyota dealership, and then by 1985, uh, we were selling over 1,100 cars a month, and we we're the fifth largest Toyota huh. dealer in the world. And wow. we did it primarily, well, we built out a new facility. But basically, we just sort of, in, in my opinion, um, what I tried to do was sort of recreate what selling a car meant. Uh, you know, I wanted our salesmen in suits, not, you know, crazy uh, sport coats, et cetera, which is what most of them wore in those days. Didn't uh-huh. want to wear uh, sunglasses on the lot. I wanted them to be able to see eye to eye with the customers. We had a we had a, a beautiful little area where kids could play so that the customers wouldn't have to worry about their little ones. They could they could go into the play area, and we had a lady there that was really fun and took care of the kids. Uh, we we did we took away all the pressure to buy a car. We completely did away with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did a lot of things that that made a difference, and you know we were lucky too. Toyota turned out to be a great car. Uh, that was a time when the yen was two hundred and fifty to one. Right now it's like one hundred and five or one hundred and ten to one. So we had the best motor car for the best price. And I remember months in nineteen eighty six where um, flooring line is where is um, you know when you when you have a car delivered to you uh, the bank actually finances it and then you have to pay the pay the bank off with interest when you sell the car and typically in those days a flooring line would be 45 or 60 days our flooring line was a day and a half everything we had was pre-sold it took us that long to get them off the dock, get them in the dealership, construct and put new tires on them, and deliver it. But it was it was like printing money. It was the most unbelievable thing I had ever been involved in. So I was very lucky that my first couple of ventures out from the practice of law went very, very well. And, and that way I could afford some of the failures I had along the way as well. You have 35 companies, not all of them are successful. <laughs> So, um, and so were there times during, you know, um, well, first of all, did you ever miss law or once you left, you, you didn't miss it anymore? Well, you know, I, I, I was out of it for probably two and a half years and a gentleman named Bill Millard who owned a big company at the time called Computerland was the largest uh, retailer of computers in the world at the time had uh, two cases pending against him in Alameda. Two sets of employees were suing him. The first case had gone to trial. They were in front of the same judge, too. first case went to trial, and it turned out to be 
the largest, at the time, the largest punitive damage award in the history of California, $141.5 million, which in 1985-86 was a lot of money. And now he had the second trial coming up, and he obviously fired his lawyers, and he sent his minions around, and they ended up coming to see me. And I said, well, you know, two problems. Number one, I didn't do civil. Number two, I'm retired. But I would meet with Mr. Millard and tell him what he's looking for in a trial lawyer, if that would help. And I'd heard of Millard, and I thought he'd be an interesting guy to meet. He was kind of like Bill Gates is today. That's the way Millard was at that time. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, so I met with him, and, you know, by that time, he hated lawyers. So when he found out that I had quit, he thought, um, I must be the smartest lawyer ever met. So he had to have me. (laughs) And he made me a, an offer I couldn't refuse, and that was to put together a small firm for the sole purpose of preparing and trying that case. So huh. I said, if you give me three weeks to make sure you're in the right, I'll do it. And he did, and I really thought he had been wronged in the first trial. So I put together the team, we tried that case, and we won it. And in fact, they wrote a book about it called Once Upon a Time in Computer Only, because you have two cases, identical facts. One's this mammoth plenty of award, the other's a complete defense uh-huh. verdict. And then uh, I kept the firm together, and I went on and did 60 civil trials to verdict in my last set of uh, legal cases uh, were the Catholic cases that uh, finally settled in California, as I'm sure you know, in 2008. I so I actually had so a chance yeah. to get back in the practice of law, represent good clients, good causes, and and uh, it all turned out really well. Huh. Okay, so what have you been up to after that? Well, you know, I've just had a variety of, of uh, businesses. Uh, today, um, I'm chairman of a company in San Francisco uh, by the name of Landmark Worldwide. We have 41 offices in 21 countries. Uh, we do business consulting uh, sort of worldwide, but we also have a great course uh, that we deliver in the United States and in Europe uh, and uh, Asia called the Landmark Forum. Uh, we put about 3 million people a year through that course. Uh, we have a great CEO uh, of the company, and uh, I'm just very, very proud of what we do. In fact, it's the one thing that I do where I truly believe, uh, you know, it helps make the world a better place. Uh, we yes, have our I know of people. I, I've met people. I, I know of people who went through the landmark forum um, oh, and have that? had yes, and who have had very good. I mean, that seems it's interesting because it seems like, um, and that's sort of in line with this book. Um, you know, overcoming right. uh, hardships and achieving lasting success. Um, I mean, that's part. You know that. That business really aligned with who you are. <laughs> you know, when you were talking about uh, being becoming one of the top hundred debaters and speaking, being lauded for your speaking and so on, um, you could have become. I don't know if anybody has ever told you this, but as a psychiatrist, it's my opinion that um, you could have either become at that point the way you did. You know, taken the path that you did. Or you could have become a great sociopath, <laughs> talking people into things. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I haven't really thought about that. So. 
<laughs> That's pretty funny. Well, it's good that it's good that you took this path instead. So, what are you doing nowadays? Yes. So you're still doing. So you're doing the landmark now, currently. Yep. And then um, and? I just uh, sold. We had a um, diagnostic laboratory company in Seattle, uh, but my partner up there uh, died last year of colon cancer. Really sad because we've been partners for 25 years. And so we have, I just recently sold that company. I'm spending quite a bit of time uh, with our hotels. We have um, one of our hotels is in the south of France. It's in a medieval village called Ez. And uh, it's, you know, a thousand-year-old village. It uh, sits 1,300 feet above the Med, halfway between Nice and Monaco. It's a fantastic place. And then we have another one on the island of of uh, Mallorca, uh, which is uh, off of Spain. It's a Spanish island off of Spain, and it's a 16th century finca, which means in, in Spain means a fortified palace. And uh, you know, I, I just enjoy those both of those things so much. They're they're. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm not really a hotel guy. But it's, you know, I've stayed in hotels, and so, again, what we've done is to try to make it um, first rate in every way, but, but give it uh, a styling and a, and a sense of uh, comfort that, you know, is what mm-hmm. I'm always looking for when I'm traveling. So it's been a lot of fun. Now, and, here's uh, a, and then, of a course, question. Oh. I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you weren't finished. Go uh, ahead. And then, uh, you know, I do a lot of consulting um, where people have me come in to try to solve problems. So um, a court, a few years ago, a court uh, appointed me as trustee of the Martin Luther King estate to help try to bring peace uh, to the um, Coretta and uh, Martin King uh, siblings, uh, which I did for about two and a half years. Uh, currently, I am... Um, I have been hired by one of the families that owns a major league baseball team uh, to assist them. Wow! Uh, the <laughs> sort of the patriarch of the family is is older you, now, and you know, so they're dealing with. You know, things. I guess that I guess that part of the going from to twenty one schools also makes it so that you um, you get bored easily. You know, you need <laughs> like new uh, something new. So that's why you've been going from one you know, one type of business and uh, to the next as well. But here's a question. We don't actually you know, have much, much time left. Um, well, how Dr. Ben Carson wrote the foreword to your book, The 15%, Overcoming yeah. Hardships and Achieving Lasting Success. What was your connection to him? The Horatio Alger Association um, was started, interestingly enough, by uh, Norman Vincent Peale in 1948, and every year 10 Americans are given the award that sort of are rags to riches success stories that have overcome Uh uh, difficult um, lives and have gone on to be successful. And in 1994, Ben and I both got the award. And uh, for three days in Washington, you do all these things and you do everything in alphabetical order. And in that year, there was nobody between the C's and the G's so we sat right next uh-huh. to each other for three days and uh, developed a friendship, and we've been good friends ever since. 
And, of course, oh, wow. his story is just unbelievable. Uh, it's, you know, phenomenal what he's accomplished and and given, you know, his childhood and everything. It's amazing. Uh-huh. So huh. he's, he's um, quite a guy. Yes, yes. That was that was a good choice, um, you know, for uh, to choose him to be part of the government. So, okay, we you only know, have... Uh, you, uh, a, you mentioned yeah. a second ago about being bored. You know, uh, when I went through my first divorce, um, I went through a lot of marriage counseling, and a psychiatrist who I thought was very good, I can't remember his name, he was in San Diego, he diagnosed me with two things. You'd get a kick out of this, I think. One is ADD, and he, yeah. you know, I probably that is true, and I think part of what causes me to go do things is the fact that I have adult ADD. But the other yeah. thing he diagnosed me with was OCD. And he said, it's interesting, your ADD makes you go out and do things, but your OCD makes you keep it all organized. And your uh-huh. OCD would have you at home reorganizing your sock drawer all day, but your ADD makes you go out and buy companies. So it's kind of interesting. I, th- I do think I probably have both of those, but somehow they balanced out to be a positive, not a negative. <laughs> and he didn't mention about you almost becoming a sociopath. Okay. <laughs> so now we only have two minutes left. Yeah, I'm probably going to ignore um, that one. So. <laughs> um, we only have two minutes left. What would you like people to, uh, obviously they can buy the book on Amazon. Presumably they can also buy it in um, bookstores like Barnes & Noble and independent bookstores. Um, what, what is the last takeaway that you'd like to give people about the book? Well, you know, I hope there were two things I was trying to do. One was to make it entertaining, because I think if it's not entertaining, people won't stick with it. But secondly, uh, it it needed to deliver a message. And I just hope that there's somebody out there um, that will resonate uh, with the stories that I tell, resonate with the... Um, the um, uh, information that we're giving them and the professional information that's included in there um, that that they will take it to heart. And uh, I hope there's somebody out there who picks up that book and uh, ends up turning their life around and finding joy and success in a life that wouldn't necessarily indicate that at first blush. And if there's just one person that does that, then I will be glad that I wrote it. Well, I'm sure there will be more than one. Well, um, Terry Giles, thank you very much for sharing your story. I want to tell the title of the book again. It's called The 15% Overcoming Hardships and Achieving Lasting Success. And as you will remember that I mentioned at the beginning, the 15% um, are those who are high achievers. So thank you, and you certainly embody that, and um, you know, and, and came from a from a shocking or a childhood that wouldn't, for various reasons, as we've been talking about, would one wouldn't have thought would have led in this direction. So thank you, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 